Thank you, Rick. Uh, so uh, it, it is a joy and a privilege to, to be with you all this morning. Uh, as Rick was just saying, I have the privilege to serve along with my family at Second Presbyterian Church in Greenville, and we've been there since 2018, both as an intern and now as an assistant minister, and we love that church. But before we were there, we were here. Um, I read recently uh, of Archibald Alexander and David Calhoun's great two-volume set on the, the history of Princeton Seminary, and Archibald Alexander was... Uh, the first president of that school, and after he passed, his son wrote, uh, father to his dying day was intensely a Virginian. And you know, sometimes you read something in a book and you're like, that resonates, that's me. Because that is me. I was born at Henrico Doctors, I graduated from Lee Davis High School, I got my bachelor's degree from VCU, and I loved living here for the first 30 years of my life. So I, when I say I'm thrilled to be with you all this morning, know that that's not pleasantries, that's not the thing the speaker is supposed to say, it's, it's true. Uh, I am really grateful for you all, and I'm grateful particularly for the ministry of All Saints Church. Uh, because I love Richmond, it warms my heart to know that there is a church in the heart of my city that su subscribes to the same ordinary or simple means of grace ministry that I do, and that is, is showing forth the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ in an increasingly dark world and in an increasingly dark city. And so I am so grateful for you all. I pray for you every Lord's Day. Every Sunday as I'm driving into my church, I've got a list of pastors and congregations that I pray for, and you all are on that list. And so I'm so thrilled to be with you guys this morning. But I'm not here right now to talk about me, nor am I here to talk about you. I'm here to talk about Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21. When Rick emailed me a few weeks ago asking if I would like to teach this chapter of the confession, I said, absolutely I would, uh, because I have a, a great fondness in my heart for the Westminster Standards. Uh, I teach them weekly to our church's uh, high school students every Wednesday night. And if you told them that Pastor Early was going to attempt to teach an entire chapter of the confession in 45 minutes, they would laugh you to scorn. <laughs> it normally takes me about 30 minutes to get through one paragraph, but we've uh, strapped it down and we're going to, by God's grace, make it through this morning. And there's no better time to study the, ch the topic of chapter 21, which is of religious worship in the Sabbath day, than right before a worship service. Um, because I, I hope you realize that what we're about to do, not right now, but an hour from now, in that room across the hall, is the most important thing you will do all week. It is the most important thing you will do all week. It is more important than any meeting you have lined up at work. It is more important than any, uh, than any personal thing you have going on in your life. The worship of the living and true God is the most important thing you will do all week. It is the highest privilege that this life affords because... It is the purpose for which you have been made. It is the purpose for which you have been redeemed. And it is the purpose for which you will enter into everlasting glory, is to worship and praise the living and true God. Now, I realize that that is a major claim, and I would like to prove it to you real briefly, though maybe you don't need convincing. I would like to prove it to you nonetheless from the words of Scripture, because this is, while we're teaching the confession, the Scripture is our sole infallible rule for faith and practice. And so just think about this. In Exodus chapter 8 and verse 1, you all know the context of this passage. This is the Lord sending Moses to rescue his people from their captivity in Egypt. And the Lord, through Moses, says to Pharaoh, 
Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth, Let my people go. Why? That they may serve me. The whole purpose for which God had in mind of redeeming his people was not just to set them free to do whatever they wanted to do. It was to set them free that they might worship, that they might serve him. In Luke chapter 1, we spend a lot of time in the early chapters of Luke this time of year. There's the song of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. And he, in his, his praise to the Lord after the birth of his son, praises, him that he, praises the Lord that he has remembered his covenant with Abraham and that he has established a horn of salvation from David's house to set his people free. Why? That they might serve him. Luke 1, 75. And then you get the picture of worship in the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation chapter 4, verses 9 to 11. This is what we're going into in eternity, my friends. John writes, Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 9, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever, the 24 elders, I, I must pause here and let you know that in the Greek that word for elders is presbyteros, those closest to the throne in heaven are the Presbyterians. Amen. <laughs> when the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever, they cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The, the Bible is clear. This is what everything exists for, is the worship and the praise of the living God. And in this next hour, what's going to happen, I hope you realize, Christianity is fundamentally a supernatural religion. Those forces of the, of the kingdom to come break through the darkness of this world in the ordinary means of grace, in what we're about to do, in the singing of God's praises, in the prayers of the elders, in the preaching of the word, in the administration of the supper, supernatural forces are breaking through and building you up. That is what is going on. And so my goal then, in this hour, and in this time in Sunday school, is to help you better understand what it is that we're going into. Not that you don't know the order of service, but to think through what it is that's going on so that you would greater profit from it, and so that the Lord would receive the utmost praise. And, and what we're going to do, you'll see on the board, apologies in advance for my handwriting. Should have gone to med school, but nonetheless, I'm here with you. Um, we're going to work through this chapter. There's eight paragraphs, but we're going to work through it in six segments, answering the classic who, what, when, where, and why of worship, uh, albeit in a slightly different order. <coughs> so first of all, why do we worship? Why do we worship? Well, we've already kind of hinted at this. We worship because we can't help it. Mankind cannot help but to worship. We were made for it. Mankind are invariably worshiping beings. Charles Hodge reasons this. He says, if all languages have some name for God, it proves that the idea of God in some form belongs to every human being. It's hardwired into us, he's saying. And he goes on. It is hardly conceivable that a human soul should exist in any state of development without a sense of responsibility. And this involves the idea of God. For the responsibility is felt to be not to self, 
nor to men, but to an invisible being higher than oneself. What he's saying there is, is everyone has a sense of account. Something is watching over me. Something is, is judging me in some sense. I have to give an account to someone, and therefore I am made to worship. Paul would address this as well in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 23, where he says that man's great sin is not atheism. It's not the denial of the existence of a god. It's not the refusal to worship. It is the gleeful worship of anything but the living and true God. That is man's great sin. So why do we worship? Well, we worship because that's what we've been made to do. But there's another reason. Uh, and if you have a, a copy of the Confession, go ahead and open up at this point to chapter 21 in paragraph 1. If you're using the, the hymnal, I think it's page 860 towards the bottom. So Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21, paragraph 1, is going to give us uh, another reason for our worship. Yeah, 860. Uh, the light of nature, so that's what we were just talking about. The light of nature showeth that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is good, and doth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart, and with all the soul, and with all the might. And so, so he, the, the divines are saying there that there's, the one reason is the light of nature, just instinctively we know that we're supposed to. But the other aspect of this is that the light of nature reveals not only that God is, but that he is good. We worship God because he is good. And, and the very created order screams that to us. Uh, would somebody be so, so kind as to read for us Psalm 19, verses 1 to 6, if you have your Bible with you. Psalm 19, verses 1 to 6. Yes, sir. Thank you, brother. So Psalm 19 makes very clear that the very created order, everything that you see, screams out that there, that there is a God. And not only that, that he is good, that he gives us these things to promote life. The life that comes forth from, uh, from seed time and harvest, from morning and night, and from the perfect cycle in which our, our world works, tells us that God is good. And because he is good to all, sending the rain on the just as well as the unjust, all, not just Christians, owe him worship. Now, only Christians are able to worship him aright in a way that's pleasing and acceptable to him. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But all owe him worship. Uh, the 19th century Scottish Presbyterian minister, Robert Shaw, uh, defines the act of worship like this. Religious worship consists in that homage and honor which we give to God as being infinite of being, of, excuse me, as being of infinite perfection, whereby we profess our subjection to and confidence in him as our chief good and only happiness. In worship, we're saying that, that Lord, you're, you're in charge. We are subject to you, and we believe that you are able to provide all that we need. We believe that you are able to watch over and protect us. We are confident in you, and we know that this is for our good. And this is why false religion is such an affront to the living and true God, because it's ascribing that goodness, that honor, that glory, that majesty that's due to him alone to something else, to someone else. I love my wife dearly, and I am so grateful for how she cares for our children and how she provides meals in the home and, and all the things that she does to help and support our family. How insulting 
How hateful would it be of me to give honor and glory for those things to somebody else? In the same way, God is jealous for our worship that we would ascribe to him all the glory, laud, and honor that is due to him and to no one else. So this brings us naturally then to the next point of who do we worship? And it's been implicit the whole time, right? We worship God alone. And Presbyterian and Reformed worship services are conscientiously theocentric. We want to worship God in a way that he has laid out. Every part of your worship service, I don't know if you realize this or not, is structured with the intent that you, believer, would dialogue, come into communion with the living and true God. And it's strewn throughout. It's just like my worship service back in Greenville. It begins when God, through his appointed servant, calls you to worship from his word. When the elder calls you to worship, that's God speaking. He calls you into his presence. And then what do you do? You respond with prayers and singing. And then he comes to you again in the reading of the law. And what do you do? You respond with confession of sin. And then he comes to you again with the assurance of pardon. The whole service is structured so that you would dialogue, that you would meet with your God. But as Chad Van Dixhorn points out in his commentary on the confession, yes, we worship God alone, but we never worship him alone. That is to say, we never worship him by ourselves. Worship of the living and true God is to be through a mediator. And we get this uh, from, from paragraph two. Religious worship is to be given to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and to him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creature. And, since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other but Christ alone. In any act of worship, we come to the Father through the mediation of the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, And this flies right in the face of Roman Catholic theology. I would encourage you uh, to refrain from accusing our Roman Catholic friends of worshiping a different God, because what's going to happen is you're going to get lost in the word salad of the distinctions between dulia and latria and hyperdulia and all these other made-up categories. It's correct. They do worship other beings besides living and true God, but you're going to you're going to instantly invoke their confusing answers to those questions. Rather, go right to the heart of the matter. They very plainly, clearly prescribe mediation of others between you and God, of Mary, of the saints, of the priests, and the magisterium. And the Bible, my friends, could not be more clear. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus And so this is an affront to Roman Catholicism that says you can come to God, you can come into his presence on the merit, on the mediation of someone else. But no, the Bible prescribes we are to come to the Father through the Son, through the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is the one that permits us access into the presence of God. Him alone. This, by the way, I I know that you have been working through the book of Hebrews with Dennis in, in your morning worship services. This is a major theme of that book. Don't try and go back to the old covenant ways. Don't try and leave Jesus over here because of persecution and sufferings and go back and relate to God some other way because there is no other way. Those Old Testament types and shadows, they were efficacious and and fulfilled their purpose for their time, but that's not the way to come into God's presence. It is only through the Son. That's why we pray. 
in Jesus' name because we are offering our prayers through the name of our Redeemer. And this is why also Calvin lists in his little book on the necessity of reforming the church, the number one reason John Calvin gave for the Reformation was not justification by faith alone. It was because of the corrupt worship practices of the Roman Catholic Church at that time that persist down to this very day. Worship matters. Who we worship matters. Now let's talk about, and we'll spend most of our time here this morning, how do we worship? How do we worship? The confession tells us the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and is so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations of man or the devices of men or the suggestions of Satan or under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. That's back in paragraph one for those that may have lost track because I went to two and now I'm going back to one, but for pedagogical purposes, it just seemed good here. This is the statement of what we call in Reformed theology the regulative principle of worship. And this is over and against the normative principle of worship. The normative principle of worship says that if the Bible does not forbid it, then it is permissible. It's okay. And I don't have statistics to point to for you this morning, but I would suspect that the normative principle of worship is the default thinking mode of 99% of American Christians. If the Bible doesn't forbid it, it's okay. In other words, they're asking the wrong question. Uh, my, my former pastor, when I, when I lived here, uh, Dan McAvoy, would often say the wrong question leads to the wrong answer. Most uh, American Christians will ask, what's wrong with X, Y, or Z in worship? Presbyterian Reformed Christians ask, what's right with it? Did God command this? Did God require this of me? And the, the classic Bible passage on this is Leviticus 10 with Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, and they brought to the Lord not fire that he had explicitly forbid, not fire that he had said, you may not bring this particular kind of fire to my presence. No, they brought unauthorized, unrequired stuff that he did not explicitly tell them to do. And what happened? He consumed them with fire. God cares very much how we worship. Deuteronomy 12, the Lord gives specific instructions for how his people are to worship him and the land that they are going over to possess. He says in Deuteronomy 12, 32, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall, be, you shall not add to it or take from it. Now, some of you people may be thinking, well, Pastor Early, those are some great Old Testament passages, but surely something has changed. And yes, something has changed. Again, back to Hebrews. The, the, the old covenant, the old uh, things that God required are, are no longer what we bring before him. But what has not changed is the principle of Deuteronomy 12, 32. All that I command you, you shall be careful to do. The question behind every part of a Reformed worship service is what does God want? What does God want? Lots of church growth guys will tell you that the way you build a church, the way you have a successful worship service is by uh, identifying your consumer and studying your consumer and giving that consumer everything that they want in hopes that they come back. They are correct. That is what we are to do. 
Their failure is they have failed to diagnose the proper consumer. The consumer of worship is not the person in the pew. The consumer of worship is the living God. Worship is a transitive verb. It has a direct object. We worship God. We do not worship uh, absent of, of a specific being. And so we bring into his presence what it is that he wants. Again, Shaw concludes, as God is the sole object of religious worship, so it is his prerogative to prescribe the mode of it. Divine institution must therefore be our rule of worship, and whatever may be imagined to be useful and decent must be examined and determined by this rule. Everything that goes on in the worship of God should be sifted through what does the scripture say? What does the scripture require of us? Now, we also want to be careful with how we understand the regular principle of worship. We're not saying that uh, the Lord gave us a divinely inspired order of worship, and this is it. That's not what we're saying. I like this order of worship very much. It's very familiar to me. I recommend this order of worship, but this did not come down from heaven above. However, everything that's in it did. Does that make sense? There's a distinction that we want to make between elements of worship, the things that we do, and forms of worship, the forms in which that takes place. And then there's also circumstances. Now, I know those are a lot of categories to throw out at you at uh, 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. So let me just kind of give an example and walk through that, right? So an element of worship is preaching. God's word must be preached. Not a puppet show, not a skit, not uh, clips on a projector screen. Preaching of the word. Thus saith the Lord. Must happen. Element of worship. Now, the form of that preaching is variable. I don't preach like Dennis does. Dennis doesn't preach like my pastor does. And that's okay. Uh, you all, like myself, like to walk through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, books of the Bible. Bible doesn't require that. I think it's really wise. But it's acceptable to do a topical sermon. In some sense, what I'm going to do is a topical sermon because you all are dropping right in the middle of Philippians with me. Now, I've preached the whole book, but you all probably haven't gone on sermon audio and listened to all of those, and I understand. So that's a difference in form. And then you have circumstances. Uh, how long will the sermon be? Well, we'll find out. These are all different questions to ask, but the, the element, you see, that's the thing that God prescribes. The form is a secondary tier that you make good judgments on. And then the, the, the circumstances are the bottom of the list. They're all to be evaluated, but at different levels. So we want to be careful how we understand uh, the regular principle of worship. And that leads us in, into, uh, so we've gone through why do we worship? Because we have to. We're just, it's wired into us by nature. We can't help it. Who do we worship? God, through the mediation of Jesus. How? According to Scripture. And now we're on the second half what do we do in worship? What do we do in worship? This is a very related question, but it is slightly different. What does the Bible command us? Uh, you might think of the previous section as the regulative principle of worship stated. Now we're going to do the regulative principle of worship applied. And this is going to go through uh, paragraphs 3, 4, and 5. Actually, I think all the way up to 6 of your, uh, of your confession. Uh, looking at all the different things that, that must happen in worship. And I've, I've just outlined it as four things up there. We are to pray, we're to preach, we're to sing, and we're to observe the sacraments. 
Those are the four things that the confession prescribes, and you'll see that as you read it later. I'm not going to read all of those sections to you. And again, we see the, the, the dialogical model of worship right here. It's not just something that the Westminster Divines thought of in the Directory of Public Worship. God requires these things, and they are a dialogue. We come to him in prayer. He comes to us in the preaching of the word. We come to him in the singing of the praises of his name. And then he comes to us, and he confirms our faith and establishes it in the sacraments. This is a back-and-forth thing. We're not passively receiving something there. We are entering into a covenant meeting with our God. So first we have prayer. And this will come up again a fair bit in the sermon later. Uh, because this topic dovetails so well with the, the text of Philippians that I'm working through, that's why I was extra eager when, when, when Rick asked me, do you want to teach on worship? Yes. Prayer is perhaps the most underplayed element in the worship of the living God. And I think part of that is because we do a really good job at teaching people that you must pray. I think that's clear. I don't feel the need to sell anybody here on that. We don't always do as good of a job as we could on teaching people how to pray. And so what I want to give you right now is just some resources that have richly blessed and enhanced my prayer life. And if you make good use of them, I'm confident they will for you as well. The first, uh, the, the traditional classic, I use it every day, The Valley of Vision, published by Banner of Truth. Every day I begin my time of prayer for my family and for my congregation with The Valley of Vision. And it's a great little book that, that takes uh, classic Puritan prayers and puts them all bound in one volume for you. Um, there's another option along this line. It's called uh, Piercing Heaven. Same idea, different prayers, updated language, published by Lexham Press. But the idea is, is take old prayers from saints of old and pray with them. Pray those very prayers. They're excellent. And, and, and shape and modify them as you feel so moved. Um, the, the Puritans used to say, we are to pray until we pray. That is to say, you read it aloud, you meditate on it, and you work through it till you feel your heart stirred up and praying along with them. That's a great bit of advice. Uh, the next resource that I would give you is the catechisms of your own church. The Westminster Shorter and Larger and the Heidelberg all have sections examining the Lord's Prayer. They are a treasure trove. Uh, in the same way that you use Dennis's preaching to help you understand particular books of the Bible, use those catechisms to help you understand what it is that you're praying. For instance, when you pray, hallowed be thy name, the Shorter Catechism 101 gives this answer. In the first petition, which is, hallowed be thy name, we pray that God would enable us and others to glorify him in all that whereby he maketh himself known. That's what we're praying when we say that. Help me to glorify you, Lord. And that he would dispose all things to his own glory. Help me to glorify you and then use everything around me for the glory of your name. The catechisms are a great resource on this. And if you want those numbers, uh, the, the larger catechism, or the Heidelberg deals with this in 116 to 129, the larger in 178 to 196, and the shorter in 98 to 106, or if that's too much to remember and write down, it's towards the end of all of them. The third resource that I'll recommend to you in our time together is Matthew Henry's A Way to Pray. 
And this is, a, again, published by Banner of Truth, revised by O. Palmer Robertson. It's one I use every day. There's a free version of this online that's been edited by one of my professors, Ligon Duncan. And this one's truly remarkable because what, what, what Matthew Henry has done is he's worked through the Westminster Directory of Public Worship. And he's taken each of the section headings on prayer. And he just wrote from memory Bible verses and arranged them as a prayer. So just to give you an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, the, the first section on praise, he gives us this prayer. He says, let us now lift up our hearts along with our eyes and hands to God in the heavens. Let us stir ourselves up and take hold of God as we seek his face. Let us give him the glory due his name. Let us worship God who is a spirit in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking these kinds of people to worship him. And that prayer, and you'll get this in the footnotes there, is just a, a compilation of Verses from Lamentations, John's Gospel, Isaiah, and the Psalms. And so you're praying God's word back to him. And when you pray the word of God, you can have confidence that is one he delights to say yes to, that he delights to answer. Maybe not in the way that you have in your mind, but you can be very sure that what you are praying is in line with the will of God when you pray his word back to him. I've quoted him several times, but I really love Robert Shaw. And he says, As our petitions ought to be regulated by the revealed will of God. So he's saying we, we shouldn't pray for things that God doesn't will. Therefore, his word must be the rule of prayer. Nor by this rule are our prayers circumscribed with narrower limits. He's saying but by limiting yourself to praying the word of God, you're not cutting off things that you need. For nothing really necessary for us can be pointed out which is not contained in some divine declaration or promise. Everything that you need, God has promised to give you in his word. And so when you pray according to his word, you're not cutting yourself off from anything that you need. And he, gives the, and he goes on to say, Spiritual mercies ought to be uh, preferred in our requests, but it's certainly permissible to pray for uh, physical things. If we regulate our petitions by the word of God, then we may feel with the utmost confidence that there is an entire harmony between his will and our desires, and we may take full encouragement of that beautiful and comprehensive promise. If ye abide in me, and my word abides in you, ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. John 15. And so when you pray to God, the word of God, you can be confident that you're praying for the things that he delights to do. So what would it look like in the life of this church if we, we prayed, and I'm sure you often pray for one another, dear Lord, please be with so-and-so in this trial and circumstance. Lord, please, by your spirit, bless, uh, bless this person who's grieving the loss of a loved one. That's a great prayer, and I'm not here to beat it up. I'm, I'm, it's good. I'm glad that you do that. But what if you prayed 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 7? O oh God of all comfort, who comforts us in every affliction, be that God of comfort that your word says that you are to this person in this instance right now. What a difference that would make. Other great prayers to pray for your church family can be found in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is, is remarkable because Paul will give a, a, a rich doctrinal section and then he prays about it. It's amazing. Look at that later. Look at that this afternoon. Ephesians 1, 16 to 21 contains a very uh, rich prayer that, well, we, got, we, we have a minute, I'll look at that right now. 
What if we prayed this for one another? Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And now what does he pray in verse 17? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Do we not need a spirit of wisdom in a time such as ours? I pray that God would give that to you in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Guys, it's not just because it's a rainy, cloudy day. That world is hopeless, and it will beat you up seven days a week. But you pray that God would give you the hope, not of this world, but that hope to which you have been called, that hope of glory, that blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. That is what we're living through, living for, rather, and that's what gives us the strength to get through. And he goes on, that what are the of his glorious inheritance towards the saints. There's nothing that he can't do. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. What a comforting thing it is to know that the very power by which our God raised Jesus from the dead is at work in building you up in comfort and in hope. And the prayer is right there for you. And you pray it. That would revolutionize the life of many churches. What's the next element? It's preaching. Paragraph 5 gives us the the, the last three of these. Uh, Preaching, singing, and sacraments, and we'll treat each of them briefly. First, preaching. The, The reading and the preaching of God's word are the focal point, the highlight of corporate worship. We don't have a really nice worship and then the pastor gets up to say some words. No, the, the preaching is central. I actually like that it's kind of in the middle of the all service of worship because it's hard to miss that it is the center. I, and I adore the language of our larger catechism here. It says, the Spirit of God, 155, maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners, of driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ conforming them to his image and subduing them to his will, strengthening them against temptations and corruptions, building them up in grace and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. It is the sermon on the Lord's day where the Lord speaks to you most potently, most clearly, most directly. When the preacher is in the pulpit and he is faithfully handling the word of God, it is not just the preacher who is talking. It is God speaking to you. And that's not me saying that because I'm a preacher. That's the Apostle Paul who thanks God that the Thessalonians received the words of his mouth, not as the words of man, but as what it really is, the word of God. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. And yes, it's true that not every word that that the preacher says is always going to be uh, perfectly derivative of the word of God. That's true. But, but in his faithful labors, the great majority of it will be. And so we come with eager expectation to hear from God. And then we go and we examine it according to the scripture to see if these things are so. And then we rejoice in it and we take it in and we, we live by it. What a comforting thought it is that God takes care of his church in many ways, but especially through the preaching. Now, no doubt many pastors have taken that teaching, that truth, and twisted it into an abusive situation. That's true. 
But Calvin gives us a, a sobering reflection. He writes, Teachers are, in their turn, admonished to beware of bringing forward anything but the pure word of God. Why, why does Dennis labor so hard? Why does my pastor labor so hard? Why do I? Because, <laughs> because I, I know the position I'm in, because he knows the position he's in. He's speaking God's word to you, and he's accountable for how he does it, and so am I. And so is every other minister. So it actually sparks a great deal of fear and trepidation. Who is sufficient for such things? Only God working through fallible men. We're going at a rather clipped pace. I told you it was going to be hard to get through all of the chapter, but we're trucking along. So what's next? Singing. Singing. Again, the words of Hodge, hymns and psalms of praise are in their essence metrical and musically uttered prayers. God commands the singing of his praises in church. And in my experience, it is, it is mostly men who need to be confronted with this truth. It is mostly men that need to be confronted with this church because it's, it's beyond question that God commands it. Psalm 33, 1-3, very clear. Sing to him a new song. Colossians 3.16, Paul gives the imperative of the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. God's commands are not options. There are not exceptions if you don't particularly feel like it that day. There are not exceptions if you don't feel like a particularly gifted singer. I am not. But I take great comfort in Psalm 100 and verse 1 that says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Not only can you do that, it is your duty to do that. And we sing his praises because of his goodness in creation, because of his grace in redemption, and because of his glory and consummation. And this is why I get particularly nervous looking out at a congregation. I'm not talking about you guys. I've, I've never looked out on y'all before. But in general, and half of them aren't singing. Because it reveals to me, or it suggests to me, that maybe they don't know God's goodness. Maybe they don't know God's grace. Maybe they don't know his glory. Because the heart that knows these things, that has experienced these things, I believe cannot help but to sing. Sing of his goodness and creation. Do you know that the first words recorded of man in the Bible are a song? God called Adam and he said, Adam, I want you to name every creature that I've made. And he says, dog, cat, giraffe, whatever. And then he sees woman and he sings. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And we see that even before the fall, man is singing because of the goodness of God in creation. We sing because of his grace and redemption. The, the great Old Testament picture of the rescue of God's people is, of course, the Exodus. And what's the very first thing they do after they cross the Red Sea? Exodus 15, they sing because of his grace and his goodness and redemption. And, and we already looked at this in Revelation earlier but we are to sing because of his glory in consummation. We have the great picture of the worship around the throne. Do you ever think about this? There will be no more preaching in heaven, right? Got Jeremiah 31. You will no longer have needs, need of a teacher, for everyone will know the Lord. There will be no more sacraments in heaven because there are signs and seals that point to something that you're with. You don't need the sacraments anymore in heaven. There will be singing. There will be singing. And we get the joy of practicing that even now. And then lastly, there are the sacraments. 
and you'll enjoy a full chapter on the sacraments uh, in this Sunday School series, and you'll enjoy a full chapter on each of them individually, so I won't belabor those points <coughs> right now, but I will say that in the worship of God, in his kindness, he gives us these visible, tangible reminders of his grace to us. They do not bestow grace in and of themselves, but they point us to the one who does. In baptism, whether it's the baptism of a covenant child or of an adult convert, you, you are reminded that as surely as the water washes away the filth of this earth, so also will the blood of Christ wash away the sins of all who believe in him. In the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, in the taking of the bread and the wine, you're being built up. You're saying, I have an interest in this. This body was broken Yes, for many, but for me. This blood was shed. Yes, for many, but for me. And he is coming to you, and he is building you up in that. And, and also, the Lord's Supper in particular, it points forward to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus says at the institution of the Lord's Supper, I have desired earnestly to eat this Passover with you, and I will not again until I taste of it with you in the new heavens in the new earth, the kingdom of God, Luke 22, 15 to 16. All right, where do we worship? We got to go quick here. Where do we worship? Westminster 21, 6. Neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel either tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or towards which it is directed. But God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and truth, as in private families and in secret, each one by himself. So more solemnly in the public assemblies, which are not carelessly or willfully to be neglected or forsaken, when God by his word or providence calleth thereunto. Short Cliff Notes version, there is no such thing as a holy site in New Testament Christianity. And this is, again, a, a direct swipe, and rightly so, against the Roman Catholic Church. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but um, one of the reasons that a, a Protestant church is locked during the week is because there's nothing special about people coming here to pray. But that happens all day long at the Roman Catholic cathedrals because they're told, if you pray here, God hears you better. God is more likely to answer that. No, we believe that God is to be worshipped everywhere. There is no special holy site. Now, they also are careful to point out that in the gathered corporate assembly, something more special is happening. That's also true. But you do not need to be in a specific spot. Now, I hesitate to open up the, uh, the can of worms that is the Sabbath, but we do have 10 minutes, and we're going to try. We come now to when do we worship? Well, we worship on the Lord's Day or what is also called the Christian Sabbath. And I would highly recommend to you uh, Dr. Piper's book on the Lord's Day for further reading on this subject. But in a nutshell, what these paragraphs 7 and 8 are telling us is that the worship of the Lord on the Lord's Day is not a mere convention. It's not that the church decided a long time ago, hey, everybody's free on Sunday morning, let's just do it then. That's not what happened. It's not, it's not just a, a man-made convention, and it's not an edict of the church. It's a biblical mandate. And if you ask 99 out of 100 evangelicals, is the Sabbath, 
is the Lord's Day still an abiding law? They're going to say no. The Westminster divines say yes. One is wrong, one is right, and the Westminster divines are right. And they give us two principles out of which they deduce this. One is called a creation ordinance. The Lord's Day is a creation ordinance, right? At the end of the creation week, God rested, and he consecrated the Sabbath of rest. It happened before the fall. It happened before the giving of the law. And, and, and Moses even alludes to the Sabbath and the requirement of it in Exodus 19. The Ten Commandments are given a chapter later. It's a creation ordinance. It's woven into the fabric of the created order. One of my old professors, Dr. Ryan McGraw, identifies the Sabbath along with marriage and labor as these creation ordinances. He says they are woven into the very fabric of the world. They are a part of God's purpose in creation and will endure as long as the world as we know it exists. Creation ordinances are independent of any written law of God and even independent of any considerations of the fall of man and of redemption. The principle of the Sabbath abides because it is a creation ordinance. It's the way God made the world to work. Uh, If you do any study of history, you'll find that many people have tried to implement uh, a 10-day work week. And the people, because that makes sense, right? Like seven's a weird number. But zeros and tens and twenties and so on, it, it makes rational sense. And they try and implement it, and the people lose their mind because we're not created to work that way. God wove into the created order that a week is seven days, no more, no less. One of them is for rest. It's a creation ordinance. And secondly, the confession would point out that the Sabbath is part of the moral law of God, which is perpetual. I noticed on the board last week, y'all were in chapter 20. I assume two weeks ago you were in 19 of the law of God, and I assume you got a very good, thorough education that you remember right off the top of your head, that there are three distinctions or types of law. Right? There's the, the priestly law, the Old Testament sacrificial uh, regulations. There is, um, there's the law that was given to I- Israel as a governing body. Those have passed away, but the moral law, abides forever. And the reason the moral law abides forever is because it is based on the character of God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Quick example. Thou shall not murder. Why? Because God is the giver of life. Murder is contrary to the character of God. He, did, he just didn't decide that he doesn't like murder. No, it's contrary to his character. In the same way, the Lord's day is instituted after his example, according to his character. He's the first one that observed the Sabbath. What right do we think that we have to say, I'm not going to do that. It's good for thee, but not for me. No, no, it's God, and you're made in his image. It's an abiding principle. As Douglas Stewart observes, there could hardly be a stronger model for Sabbath-keeping than that of God himself. And there could hardly be a more impressive precedent within history than the creation account of Genesis 1. And I want to say also, this, the, the divines hash this out in, chap, in paragraph 8, um, honoring the Sabbath means more than just being at church on Sunday. It means more than just being here right now. It means the ordering of your affairs so that you can be free, as free as possible from all worldly distractions and recreations, even those things that aren't necessarily sinful in and of themselves. 
Sports are fine. Sports are good. Have sports. But organize your week in such a way that they don't distract from your observance of the Lord's Day, which is to be taken up in public, what we're doing now, and private exercises of God's worship. Accepting clauses, of course, works of necessity and mercy. It's an abiding principle when we worship. And one last thing to point out, because some people may be wondering, well, Pastor Early, the, the Sabbath in the Old Testament was on Saturday. What are we doing on Sunday? I suppose you would need a pretty big, significant event in the history of the world to suggest the changing of a creation ordinance. And you would. Something like, I don't know, the resurrection of the living and true God on the first day of the week. You see, for the entire Old Testament, you're looking forward to the coming of Jesus, to his ministry, to his life, death, and resurrection. So it's at the end of the week. They're waiting for it. We look back. So it's the first day of the week. And we draw our strength from there, and then we go on. The day has changed. The principle has not. We are to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And it's not, I'm not saying get rid of all these other things that you would otherwise want to be doing. I'm saying what we're called to do is to dial on our thinking and think, I get to worship the God, the God who made heaven and earth, and I get to do it all day long. What else would I rather be doing? This is, if you're a Christian, this is what waits for you for forever. And you get the privilege to observe it and practice it even now. I, I hope you see in some small part this morning, the glories of, of, of worshiping God. What, the, what a blessing and a privilege he has given you and the call to worship that you will hear shortly. Because it's the most important thing going on in all of creation. And the really amazing thing, the remarkable thing, is that creatures like you and I have been invited into it. You get to not just observe it, but participate in it. Pray with the elders as they pray. Pray their thoughts after them as they are praying God's thoughts after him. Sing with joy and gladness in your soul. Pray for me before and while I'm preaching. I hope you pray for your sermon every Lord's Day. I pray for the sermon of this church every Lord's Day because it's that important. You're participating in it. And then you also get to receive the Lord's Supper. And the gathered worship of the Lord's people on his appointed day, under the, the leadership of his called elders, his name is blessed, and the saints are sanctified, and you get to be a part of that. Amen. Let's pray, and then we'll open up for any questions y'all might have. God in heaven, I give you thanks for your love for us, your kindness to us, that you would call filthy wretches such as ourselves out of the world and into the marvelous light of the kingdom of your Son, and that you have not just called us to worship you and left us to figure it out, but that you have given clear example and guidance. Oh, what a joy, what a privilege. Would you bless these, your dearly beloved, as they prepare to worship you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Just told the floor is now open for any questions, comments, concerns, heresy trials. Was it all such a whirlwind that... Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. My, my pastor likes to say that, that if, if I tell my wife I love her, it helps if I have a sponge in hand, meaning she receives love from him helping clean up around the house. It's more than just the words. 
We have to find out what, what they want and give that to them to communicate that love. All right, well, all right. Well, thank you guys so much for your attention, and uh, Lord bless you. I'll see you all shortly.